like a vampire walking out of work today. (laughs) (laughs) I got there before the sun came up and it's been raining for five days straight. So I like walked out. I was like, "Ah!" because like the sun hit my eyes and I wasn't expecting it because I haven't seen the sun in what feels like a decade. It has been so long. I was so looking forward to today because I've been so sad. It was like we just got this like awful awful glimpse of winter yeah and my house gets so cold right um and then yeah I felt that way yesterday because I went to the Orioles game the last Orioles game I felt stupid I didn't realize it was the last one it's almost over um I haven't been since the beginning of COVID really yeah I just we just it kind of like got off of our radar of things to do during the summer yeah I just haven't been back which I'm sad about because I freaking love a baseball game it's great and Camden Yards uh, reversed their COVID policy, and you can bring food into the stadium again, which is the Lord, a blessing, an absolute blessing. Um, But yeah, it was really exciting because then, like, we're in the stadium, we had great seats, and then the sky just opened it up, and it got blue for like ten minutes, and we're like, "Yeah, let the sun, it's here." Also, like, our strife is not as bad as the people in, like, Florida and North Carolina who lost their homes. Absolutely not. Sorry, everybody. Um, We just had a lot of rain. Just a lot of rain. And it was was so cold. Um, But also, bonus, through a series of events, we ended up (laughs) going down and sitting with the assistant general manager of the Orioles and his wife. And she's, like, the nicest person ever. A series of fortunate (laughs) events. A series of fortunate fortunate events cool and it was very fun i mean we were right behind home plate who were you with um zach and olivia zach and page zach and page fun Mm -hmm. what a crew what a crew it was great zach had little snackies in his fanny pack Uh, a treat adorable (laughs) uh but we're not here to talk about the orioles no we're here to talk about history with katie and Allie. even though the orioles is the only team to have a female groundskeeper go uh This is a podcast where we talk about famous women from history. And we talk about good women and bad women and fictional women and non-fictional women from all times and places because women have nuance. But keep in mind, we are drinking the entire time. And we are not, not to not to not, historians. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but we do Google a lot and oh, yeah. uh, we watch a lot of YouTube videos. Mm-hmm. Uh, podcasts. <laughs> listen to podcasts. We basically steal everybody else's research and we welcome corrections because well, sometimes... It's wrong. Listen, you've heard of <laughs> primary and secondary sources. We're tertiary sources. Yes. <laughs> we just take everybody's secondary sources. Who knows for knowing that word? Tertiary? Yes. Um, I don't think a tertiary impressed. source is a thing, but I did. Tertiary is a word. <laughs> <laughs> Correct us on it if you want. I'm pretty sure um, it's a word. <laughs> I love it. All right. Um, but before we get into the full episode. You're at a baseball game. Yes. The last one of this game. season for your home team Mm -hmm. now people think that you're listening to the game on the radio like a lot of people do when they're at the games which is bananas to me yeah yeah yeah. well you don't Um, need to do that you don't need to do that that's too much but you're actually listening to us but you don't want to give it away by googling what these women look like right so Mm -hmm. we're gonna describe them for you we're gonna get a little physical physical Ali, who are you doing and what does she look like? So I'm doing Catherine Hepburn (laughs) (laughs) which I mean she has like what I would say in terms of old Hollywood, she has like a very serious face. She's mm-hmm. not like as soft as some of the other like 
Hollywood beauties of mm-hmm. the time. She had this dramatic low eyebrow with a sharp nose, sharp cheekbones, a sharp jawline. And she wore her auburn hair short in a light wave and it framed her bluish, grayish, greenish eyes and her long set of red lips. She was 5'8". And her beauty really stood the test of time because even as she aged, in in terms of looks, she aged very gracefully yes, she did. without like having work done and stuff like mm-hmm. that, or at least not having a lot of work done. She yeah. looked like a very graceful older woman. No shade on anybody who wants to get work done. Mm-hmm. She just looked very graceful. Perfect. She aged like wine and not like <laughs> a loaf of bread in your cabinet for too long. <laughs> Love it. Um, Who are you so, doing and what does she look like? I am doing Sofia Coppola. Sofia is an Italian-American woman who has dark, shiny hair, which she, especially in the 90s, loved like a chunky blonde highlight. God, uh, yes. She has dark, wide-set, almond-shaped eyes. She has high cheekbones and a long nose with a slight bump on it. She is 5'4", but very stylish. I like saying butt as if like you can't be stylish if you're 5'4". Well, I'm 5'4". Um, <laughs> but so not exactly stylish. Your height. <laughs> um, it, but in... So, what am I doing? Okay. In her most recognizable screen role, she is in a fancy dress splattered with blood. <laughs> but in real life, she is typically behind the screen looking through a camera lens or setting a scene with her actors... Uh, one of her iconic looks while she's directing a film is she loves to wear like a white cowboy hat, which is so cute. That is fun. <laughs> I love a cowboy hat. Yeah. So she is tiny, but she makes a very big impression on set. Mm. And that's what she looks mm. like. <laughs> Most people might not know, but I have an uncle who wears a cowboy hat everywhere he goes. Yes. he. Uh, you know what? I thought I saw him at Bethany Beach because there was a guy in blue jeans and a cowboy hat and work boots uh-huh. who stood on the beach and watched his family play for an hour. Just stood straight Just there? Just stood straight there. Hands in pockets? Hands or? in pockets. Okay. Okay. Hands in pockets. Didn't move. Didn't like shift around. I almost was like, is that Dale? Like, I don't know if Dale can stand that Excuse long. Excuse me, Dale. But. Uh, was there a belt buckle situation? Yes. He had a belt buckle. Okay. Yes. On the beach, no less. Very intense. Seriously. Okay. Um. So are you going to tell me what I'm drinking? Yes. So this is called Sophia's Shandy. It's very red. This is our third red drink in a row. I know. It was an accident. Um. <laughs> Not really. What am I talking yeah, about? I put I would, a lot of red things in here. Yeah, red is I red. just wasn't thinking about it. So anyway, <laughs> I can't tell you how little I thought about this cocktail. <laughs> You're just welcome, kidding. everybody. <laughs> so this is an ounce to an ounce and a half of Aperol, um, half an ounce of lemon juice, uh, half an ounce of the ch- maraschino cherry liquid from the jar, uh, and you kind of stir that all together and you top the whole thing off with a beer. I did, since it's October, like a Marzen style lager. Cheers. So cheers. I just spilled it all over myself. <laughs> but it tastes great. I love a shandy. I mm-hmm. never make them. You always make them. They're so good. Well, especially, it's so nice when you're looking for something kind of like lighter in alcohol because mm-hmm. there's no liquor in here. Yeah. Which is kind of nice, you know, to like take a little bit of a break. Um, yeah. Um, it is. It's very good. I can tell everybody I watched Katie and she did not measure one ingredient. Uh She eyeballed the shit out of this drink. Yes, I did. (laughs) I was like, I had a weird day today. 
I do not have time to measure. No, no measuring. <laughs> I don't have the time or the capacity to measure. I'm not anything. a historian <laughs> and I'm not a measurer. Definitely not a mixologist. <laughs> that's for sure. All right. So what do you know about Sofia Coppola? Okay. So based on what you said, like, I know we wanted to do a director yes. paired with Audrey Hepburn. So she's a director, Catherine. but I don't know that I would have said she was a director. I think she was in the Godfather, right? Yeah. Okay. Uh-huh. That's the only thing I know her from, like that Fun. she was in the Godfather, but she was young. Yeah. Y- yeah. When she was in that, but I don't know a lot about her, about her life. I know that like our original plan was to do some, there's only been two women who have won yes. directing Oscars, but there's just not a lot about them. There just wasn't enough about them. And yeah. it was super frustrating. And I, and even Sofia Coppola, there's not a ton about her either, but there was more. Like, <laughs> like the other two would have been, like, one page, yeah. which is super frustrating. I mean, directing is just still, A, a male-dominated field, yeah. and B, like, even though there are a lot of female directors, they're just not, I guess maybe, I don't know, I'm sure you'll talk about it, but not given, like, the highballer jobs, mm-hmm. like a lot of the male directors are. Yeah, mm-hmm. exactly. All right, so let's get into it. I got most of this from Wikipedia, and then Screen Prism uh, had a few breakdowns of her career and her movies and stuff like that. Um, I am not a movie buff by any means, so I'm going to be talking about things that are way out of my comfort zone. <laughs> um, I, <laughs> I mean, I watched 9 to 5 for the first time last week, <laughs> so everyone calm down. Okay. Sofia Carmina Coppola was born on May 14, 1971, in New York. She is the youngest child and only daughter of documentarian Eleanor Neal and famed filmmaker Francis Ford Coppola. But those aren't her only famous family members. Jason Schwartzman is her cousin, and Nicolas Cage is her cousin. Wow. <laughs> I found out this week that his name is Nicolas Kim Coppola. No way. Yeah. Listen, I always love a Nick Cage in my stories. We try and find a way anytime we can to just get him in there. Um, He's such a wild card. (laughs) Even though she was born on the East Coast, she mainly grew up on the West Coast in California on her parents' farm. But to be clear, this is like a fancy California ranch, not like a Kansas hay farm. Mm. She's not like doing chores in the barn. She's doing things like interning for Chanel when she's 15. Oh, She's also doing small acting bits, mainly for her father. So the Godfather was being filmed while she was being born, which was why she was born on the East Coast, because her family didn't live there. So she's born, and her father's like, oh, we need a baby for a christening scene. So he put his, like, I don't know if she was a couple weeks or a couple months, but that was a tiny, tiny baby. And he just put her in the movie. So her first role is as a baby who gets baptized. In the first Godfather movie, which is wild. She's a little baby. Just so tiny. Unreal. She also appeared in many other movies that her father directed, um, including The Outsiders and Godfather 2. The Outsiders? Uh Stop it! What a good book. For a book that's only like 60 pages or something, it's really good. (laughs) Her first role in... Her first role not in one of her father's movies was in 1984's Frankenweenie, uh, which is a Tim Burton film, and that was when she was 13. But it's often not accredited to her because she was trying to kind of branch out and be her own person, not a Coppola. So she's like, I have a stage name now, and it's Domino. (laughs) She just felt like it sounded really glamorous, but it 
kind of just sounds like a dog. And also it's like, you can't quite go by one name yet, honey. No, <laughs> like, you're not ready. You're not ready. Domino. I mean, um, it could have worked. It works for some people. Yeah, it worked it for Aquafina. Yes, it did. It worked for her very well. Um, so she graduated from St. Helena High School in 1989. And she later attended Mills College and the California Institute of the Arts, where she studied painting and photography. So in 1989, she got a taste of being behind the scenes rather than in front of the camera. She co-wrote a short film entitled Life Without Zoe, which was released as part of a tripart anthology uh, film called New York Stories. Her father helped her write it and also directed the film. During the 90s, she appeared in some music videos for bands like Sonic Youth and the Chemical Brothers and Black Crows. Uh, She just ends up kind of dropping out of college. um, And she was trying to move away from film and acting at that point and go more into fashion and design and modeling. But then she had to step into one of her father's movies one last time. Winona Ryder was cast in the final Godfather movie as Michael Corleone's daughter, or is it Corleone? Do we know? Mm-hmm. Is that official? Who knows? I've never seen any of the movies. Uh, but really? She, I've never seen not a one. Oh. I know. Have you seen any of the diehards? Mm-hmm. No. Okay. Wait. Yes, I did see the first one. I'm sorry. Okay. okay. I did. Um, but Winona Ryder dropped out of the movie at the last minute due to nervous exhaustion, which is not surprising because she was very busy in the late 80s, she was early 90s. Quite a, fa- <laughs> quite a famous lady. So Sophia agreed to do it. And this would be a grave decision. <laughs> the Godfather itself garnered pretty bad reviews, but the worst reviews came for Sophia and her lackluster acting skills in the film. She was named Worst Supporting Actress and Worst New Star at the 1990 Golden Raspberry Awards. People were dragging her so hard that they said that her performance not only ended her career, but her father's as well. It was awful. That's hard also because, like, The Godfather has, like, such a following and such, like, a big male following. And and this is what, what year did you say? This is 1990. All right, so it's a little bit before, like, internet bullying. Mm-hmm. That's another, like, six or seven years. But, like, it's hard if you, like, fuck up in a previous franchise. Yeah. Well, and it's funny, too, because she's technically been in every movie. But she just was a little kid in the first two ones. Right. And now she's a teen girl. And, like, it just fucking sucked. Oh. So... She was also being accused of benefiting from nepotism. Folk said she only got the role because she was the daughter of the director, which she always agreed with. She was like, yeah, I was in the movie to help out my dad. She goes, I wasn't even originally cast in the role, but I stepped in because the other person dropped out. Like, you know, she doesn't really deny any of this kind of stuff, right. you know? Um, but she also said that the negative press didn't even really bother her too much because she said in the end, you know, I, w- I knew I wasn't an actor. Mm-hmm. She was, I knew that that wasn't really what I wanted to do. So after that, she was like, I'm retiring from acting, but like if friends and family want me to be in their projects, it's like a small side role. Like I'll do it. Um, like, did you know that Sofia Coppola was one of Padme Amidala's handmaidens in Star Wars Episode One? I didn't. <laughs> Her and Kira Knightley are probably best buds. I had no idea that Kira Knightley played the fake Padme 
Isn't that great? It's wonderful. They look so much alike. It's they really weirdly do. scary. That's why. I, that's why she said like a lot of people don't realize us in that movie because right. we look so similar. I thought they just doubled her up like <laughs> Lindsay Lohan. <laughs> they just parent trap. I love that the bitch. parent trap. <laughs> <laughs> um. So, anyways. <laughs> So while she's kind of like, yeah, I'm really done with this, she takes a slight detour into the fashion world. In 1994, she became the it girl of the 90s, modeling in magazines like Seventeen. And then she started a clothing line with Stephanie Heyman and Sonic Youth's Kim Gordon. How good was their, like, icy blue eyeshadow? <sighs> I'm sure like, it was the, like, the fantastic. glitter. It was so good. I will never get over that with the super fake tan and the <sighs> icy blue glitter eyeshadow. <laughs> Unreal. It, Lip it was, liner for days. It was truly a gem yeah. <laughs> to see people dressed like that and, and know that they meant it. Yeah. And I thought they were so hot. I was and, like, God. You know what's the worst of the worst, though, is like when you bring like two giant strips of your hair down and do like greasy, long um, front bangs framing your face. Um, My daughter does that now. It's back. And I'm no. like, tuck them behind your ears, please. God. I don't want to see that in your face. No, thanks. I did that, too. Or I would do like my hair half up, half down and have the two Yes. yes. <laughs> Ew. Why did I Everybody's do it? Stop it. Um, so her line of clothing was called, I hate this, Milk Fed. <gasps> Why? Because it was a line of baby teas, Allie. Ew. <laughs> like those little tiny baby teas that were the rage in the 90s and that, are like, back again. That, like, Everything's back. <laughs> I hate those. They're so uncomfortable. You get pit stains so yeah. fast. They like cut into your armpits. Mm-hmm. And I'm so sorry, but I cannot. The name is bananas to me <laughs> milk fed i also think it's still around milk but it's like fed? mainly a japanese brand now so okay. anyway she's in the fashion industry and she didn't even did an impromptu fashion show on the streets of new york during fashion week with the help of 90s it guy spike jones <laughs> okay <laughs> i'm just calling him that that wasn't confirmed by anyone um he and sophia started dating in 1992 and they married in 99 but divorced in 2003. Okay. <laughs> she was so influential in the fashion of the 90s that Mark Jacobs made her the face of his perfume line and referred to her as his muse. <laughs> like, I don't think I realized how big of a deal she was during this time period. <laughs> you know, like, I... I was like a pretty like a live child at that point. And I mean, I've always been bad with celebrity names, but mm-hmm. I don't remember her as like standing out as somebody in my childhood. Yeah. People kind of refer to her as like the pre Paris, like the Paris Hilton of the mid nineties. Right. It's like, she didn't have an album. She didn't no. have like a, this or a that she just was a famous rich yeah. girl. She was a famous rich girl who, uh, you know, was into fashion and like always being photographed, like wearing cool new things, you mm-hmm. know? Um, but yeah, but a lot of people are like, yeah, she was Paris Hilton, but just ended up going a different direction than Paris did. Uh-huh. You know? um, then she did, speaking of Paris Hilton, kind of a short-lived weird TV show. Um, it was a sketch show for Comedy Central called High Octane, which I don't know if anybody else remembers it. It only went on for like three episodes and filmed four. <laughs> so not very long-lived. Um But by 1998, she's kind of getting out of that a little bit and starting to step behind the camera. And she makes her first short film 
called Lick the Star. It was a 14-minute black-and-white film about the social hierarchies and isolation in middle school. And I read, like, the plot and everything, and it does strike so true if you're in middle school. It's like a girl breaks her leg and then comes back after, like, a week or something, and everyone's like, lick the star, lick the star, and it means something, and she doesn't know what the fuck (gasps) it means and, like, how isolating that feels. And then... By, like, the end of the movie, it's, like, you know, she's back in. The popular girl's out because, like, she committed, like, a social faux pas. And it's just, like, how everything in middle school can change within, like, a couple of days, you know. And so it, I think it's fascinating. Um, but this sets her up nicely for her future work, especially her debut feature-length film, which would come just a year later, The Virgin Suicides. Mm. Have you ever heard of this movie I or haven't. seen it? I've never seen it never heard of it. Okay, so... She wrote the screenplay for the movie, but it was based on the 1993 book by Jeffrey um, Eugenides, or Eugenides, Eugenides, I don't know. Something like that. I heard his name pronounced like 20 times, but it always (laughs) looks like eugenics to me. Oh, yeah. Eugenides. Eugenides. It doesn't matter. Okay. No. Sorry. He's a boy. (laughs) You don't care. So this movie starred Kirsten Dunst as Lux. Uh, She was 16 years old at the time of filming, and she said she was nervous to do the movie at first, but she and Sophia clicked right away, and they have worked well together many times ever since. Okay, so this is like post-Jumanji, but Uh pre-Bring It On. Yes, exactly. Right in the sweet spot. (laughs) Right in the the Kirsten Dunst timeline. (laughs) (laughs) The movie was produced by her father, and his contacts helped get some, you know, bigger names in the movie, which made some people scream nepotism, yes again which is fair but i also want to point out that like she worked really hard on this movie and wrote the screenplay and that shouldn't be erased just because she happens to be connected you know no yeah i think something like nepotism like if you are teaching your child your profession that's different than just like i went to this college so i'm gonna pay thousands of dollars to get my kid into this Mm, college mm -hmm, do you know what i mean i just mm -hmm. think it's different like if my dad taught me his profession and handed his business down to me right like i wouldn't necessarily call that nepotism i'd call that like inheritance yeah (laughs) yeah yeah. Mm -hmm. so it's just but i understand people get pissed about it a lot but it's like okay yeah and also once you get a feel for her directorial style you realize that she was locked in on her themes and her style from the get-go even from like lick the star her movies tend to focus on the lives of young girls and kind of how beautiful they can look on the outside and how lonely they can often feel on the inside Mm. So The Virgin Suicides follows the five Lisbon sisters from the perspective of neighborhood boys who are kind of obsessed with them. They watch them all the time. They're trying to, like, get to know them. But the girls live in this very strict household run by their overprotective Catholic father. Um, And so, like, the whole story is kind of, like, from the perspective of these boys. And they are just, like, they were just magical. And, like, we just didn't understand them, Mm. you know, and kind of, like, how like young girls can feel just like so out of worldly, you know, otherworldly to like young boys, mm. you know, and to people in general, you know, you have two young girls in the house. I don't know what the hell's going on with them. No, <laughs> I don't know that I've seen them today. <laughs> um, but things start to take a turn when the youngest sister, Cecilia attempts suicide in one of the most iconic scenes. The doctor is talking to Cecilia and he tells her, 
you're not even old enough to know how bad life gets. Like, why would you do this? To which she responds, obviously, doctor, you've never been a 13-year-old girl. Just like that yes <laughs> you know, i tell my middle schoolers all the time nobody would ever trade places with you no. oh <laughs> nobody wants to go back to middle school no. not a soul Ugh. so cecilia ends up completing her suicide and after that the father keeps the four remaining girls even more isolated and throughout the rest of the movie they're trying to kind of get out they can't they're feeling really stuck and all all the girls end up taking their own lives by the end of the movie. Oh my god! Yeah, spoiler alert, by the way, if you haven't wow. seen the movie, what <laughs> but it's also been out since nineteen ninety nine. So, yeah, it's a very dramatic movie, very dramatic book. Um, it's really intense. Uh, yeah, a lot of big themes. So, the film debuted at Cannes nineteen ninety nine and was very favorably reviewed. It was a limited release film and has since become a cult classic. Her next film released in 2003 was the film Lost in Translation. This movie stars Scarlett Johansson and Bill Murray and is about two Americans who find a strong but kind of ambiguous connection in the city of Tokyo. Coppola shot Lost in Translation in 27 days with a small crew working without permits. Scenes were filmed impromptu on the streets while scenes shot at the Park Hyatt Hotel in Tokyo allowed the crew to use its quarters between 2 and 3 in the morning without disturbing the guests this film has also become a cult classic and there's like you know this famous scene at the end of the movie where the two are parting ways and bill murray whispers something into scarlett johansson's ear and like no everyone wants to know what he said but like you know it's, it's not part revealed. of it <laughs> um <laughs> but there's also mom been- i'm pregnant yeah <laughs> <laughs> you um but there's also been some criticism of how she portrayed tokyo and japanese people as this sort of exotic and bizarre landscape for its american protagonists and people have pointed out that for a movie set in japan there are no japanese characters that have any significance it's a real friend situation yeah this is a quote uh it says the film has no meaningful japanese roles nor is there any significant dialogue between the main characters and the japanese and i think this was all i mean the whole movie about is about being lost in translation and not being in a place that's very unfamiliar so i understand what she was trying to do but, you know, kind of feeling very isolated because, like, you can't understand what anyone's saying. Right. So they're drawn but, to each other. Yes, they're drawn right. to each other in this, like, m- little bubble. But still, it's like you could do things to improve on that, you know, and make it not so cartoonish, mm-hmm. you know, like the differences. Um, but regardless of this valid critique, the movie was extremely popular and was nominated for tons and tons of awards. Sophia was nominated for three Academy Awards in the categories of Best Picture, Best Director, and Best Original Screenplay, because she wrote the screenplay for this as well. Uh, She won for Best Original Screenplay, but lost out on the other two to Lord of the Rings, Return of the King. (laughs) Which, okay. (laughs) Which, fine. But isn't that, doesn't that timeline kind of, that's not right, right? What time did the first Lord of the Rings come out? Uh, well, Return of the King's the last Lord of the yeah. Rings. Yeah. Um, when did the first one come out? It was before all the uh, Harry Potters, right? They were finished with Lord of the Rings as the Harry Potters were starting to come out. Because this came out in 1990. No, 2003. I'm sorry. Yeah, that's right then. That's night. right then? Okay. That makes total sense. Yeah, I was definitely in high school when they okay. were finishing up. Okay. 
So her nomination for Best Director made her the first American woman to be nominated in that category. Uh, yeah, first American woman. And the third woman overall after Lena uh, Wertmuller and Jane Campion. And she remains the youngest person ever nominated for that award. I mean, and to be clear, 2003, that was, okay, we were probably on, what, like 70 years of the Oscars? No, we just hit 81. So maybe 60 years of the Oscars-ish. Yeah, the, name, the number, like, 69, okay. 69th Oscars is, like, So we're in the 60s, and there had been three total women nominated by 2003, for yeah. best director. That Ridiculous. is insanity to me. Insanity. <laughs> like it, I, I think it's weird too that like, I know like parts in movies are different. So they like have best male, best female, and they shouldn't do that for behind the camera. Mm -hmm. But it's odd to me that they haven't found any inspirational female directed movies. And then yeah. also I know you have to submit your own movie. Mm -hmm. So part of that is being discouraged and yeah. having just having less females in the field. Yeah. But like, damn, mm -hmm. three by mm -hmm. 2003. Yeah. That's insane. It's ridiculous. And Catherine Bigelow didn't win until 2008. Right. That was the first. And then Zoe the won recently and she's the second. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Unreal. I, it, I, those Wait, is it Chloe? Chloe. Chloe. Yes, Chloe. Chloe. Yeah. Those Chloe numbers. Jow. Chloe Jow. Yeah. Those numbers blow me away. Yeah. Every time I think about them, I like get flabbergasted the more I think about it. Yeah. It's super upsetting. Because <laughs> you know that women are out there making fucking movies. Right. They just aren't being recognized. Yeah. It's really dumb. And it's also just such like a male thing to be like, yeah, but men are directors. Like they're in charge of uh -huh. the set. Yeah. Like the women can do all the other stuff, make the costumes, do the sound editing, mm -hmm. be in them. But yeah. we run the show. Yeah. Whoa. So she Vomit. also won the Best Motion Picture and Best Screenplay at the Golden Globes, uh, in addition to receiving three BAFTA nominations for Lost in Translation. So this was a huge movie for her. So wait, she won Best Picture at the Golden Globes, but yeah. not at the Oscars? Yeah. Usually... Because the Golden Globes is two weeks, like a couple mm -hmm. weeks ahead. Usually if you win there, it's like a pretty good indicator that you're going to win at the oh. Academy Awards. And when you don't, it's like an upset. Yeah. So I'm sure she was pretty fucking disappointed. <laughs> um, so this is also an interesting time in her personal life. She ended up dating Quentin Tarantino. So her second <laughs> director partner. Tarantino <laughs> that shit. Mm -hmm. The two dated until 2005, but broke up and they just remained friends. Like, I don't think there's any bad feelings there. Also, I think she's out of his league. He's a weird-looking dude. <laughs> he is, but he's a very famous, like... Yeah. I mean, of directors, like, when you talk about male directors, like, who do you pick, like, right out of your mind? Guy yeah. Ritchie and Quentin Tarantino. I wouldn't even say Guy Ritchie. Well, it's, I just... Jake I loves even, his stupid, oh. stupid movies where there's a whole bunch of people stealing shit. <sighs> I always think, like, Coen Brothers. Yeah. That's where, I like, my mind the goes to. I hope they're directors and not just like producers or something. I'm pretty sure they are. That would make sense. Yeah. I'm sure they've directed something. Yeah. I'm sure they're directors. I'm positive of it. There's a lot of them. Yeah. <laughs> Somebody's got to do so, it. So, uh, okay. Then in 2006, she took on her most ambitious and generously funded project yet. And this was the film Marie Antoinette. She tapped Kirsten Dunst. I was about to say, Kirsten Dunst again. Mm -hmm, to play the Queen of France. And rather than a traditional biopic, this movie is more of an internal look into, you guessed it, the loneliness of being a young queen in a new court where you are constantly on display and you don't speak the language. 
Um, of course, like she makes it so that they speak the language, but mm-hmm. she's still very isolated. Uh, this movie featured incredible costumes and sets that were period appropriate, but the language and the music and some of the other touches were very modern. She even put in little modern things like it would be like going over her shoes and there'd be like a pair of converses, like purple converses among Marie Antoinette's shoes, Um, which also she got, um, oh God, who is the guy that designs all of Carrie Bradshaw's shoes? God damn it. Manolo Blahnik? Yes. She got Manolo Blahnik to design all of the shoes for the film of course which is very cool which i mean is he french what is like manolo blonics i wonder if because if he's french that might even be more fun yeah i think so so um and it was kind of this idea when she was doing this movie she was like you know people always critique movies that are trying really hard to be historically accurate you know like even in that fucking james cameron titanic movie people are like actually the sun would have been setting on this side of the titanic on this day if you're actually setting sail at this time and it's like shut up nobody actually cares you know what (laughs) why don't we just make it blatantly historically inaccurate on purpose then Mm -hmm. you know because i want people to not be focusing on picking out the things that we didn't get right she goes i want people to be focusing on the story of Marie Antoinette as a fucking human being. Yeah, I like that. I like that a lot. Yeah. And the movie is gorgeous. And they got special permission to shoot on location at Versailles. And it won the Oscar for best costume. But unfortunately, the film is like, it's really polarizing for a lot of people. Because some people, like me, find it like a cool and refreshing take on biotics to like, biopics to like not be focusing so much on the time, like the accuracy. Yeah. But others still find it blatantly historically inaccurate, which is again, kind of the point. Um, do you think they find it insulting or do they just want to complain? I think it's both. Okay. I think it's both, you know, because... People, when the film premiered at Cannes, people booed it. They were so upset because, like, they hadn't quite absorbed what that fucking was, you mm. know? Um, but Sophie was like, I wasn't making a movie about the French Revolution. She goes, I'm making a movie about Marie Antoinette. She goes, yes, they are wrapped up in each other, and the film features the French Revolution. But she was like, it's ultimately about this person that was actually experiencing this. And like this girl who was killed Mm -hmm. because of it, but didn't know a lot about it because she wasn't in the room where it happened. Yeah. And this is what Sophia likes to do with a lot of her movies is, is take someone who is seen as frivolous and annoying and like a piece of trash to history and like give them a little more depth and understanding. Mm. So I'm just going to blow through the rest of her films. Uh, In 2010, she did a movie called Somewhere, um, and that's starring Elle Fanning. uh, But she plays, like, the celebrity's daughter. It's like a – and so the movie's actually focused on him, but Elle Fanning comes in. And I could not help but thinking that she looks so much like Eliza. Oh, my God. Your daughter. Just in case anybody doesn't know. Yeah. Um, and then <laughs> if you're not a regular listener, <laughs> Eliza and Caroline are frequently referenced on the show. And in 2013, she did the film uh, Bling Ring, the Bling Ring, and that was based on the real Hollywood Hills robberies. This starred Emma Watson in one of her big post Harry Potter breakthrough roles where she was playing like a spoiled American California girl. And she is so good in that movie yo she's really made it huh real and it was also great because a lot of people i think would have been scared to cast her because they're like no that's hermione hermione can't play Mm -hmm. you know 
this Lindsay Lohan type. Like right. that's not that doesn't work. You know, and she but, was in Perks of Being a Wallflower like short, really shortly after that. I think so. Yeah, those are definitely like around the same, same time. time. She was like really trying to like get out of that bubble, and she did it very successfully. Yeah, yeah. yeah. She chopped all her hair off. Uh, in 2015, she made a very Murray Christmas with Bill Murray, her bestie. Uh, and then in 2017, she made a Civil War era film called The Beguiled, starring her other. <laughs> fave Kirsten Stewart Kirsten Dunst wow I am really stumbling over all of this um (laughs) but this movie it was a huge departure from what she normally did and it received a lot of harsh criticism for whitewashing some of the characters that the film it was from the original novel that the film was based on and it was like among other things like not really taking other aspects of the Civil War too seriously and not getting into it I mean it was it surrounds like a a white privileged girl's boarding school and mm. like they find a, a northern soldier in the woods and shit goes down. Um, but yeah, so that movie was harshly criticized for a lot of valid reasons. <laughs> then in 2020, she reunited with Bill Murray again to make the film On the Rocks uh, with Rashida Jones. On the Rocks! Playing, <laughs> exactly, uh, Bill Murray's daughter. And I really want to see that one. It looks really good. So maybe you've seen all her movies, maybe you've seen none of them, but let's talk about what makes a Sofia Coppola film. Also, I just want to shout out Bill Murray. I think he's fun. I think he's very fun. I adore him. (laughs) I like that he, like, shows up in movies you don't expect, and, like, he's no publicity. It's just, like, a surprise, like, in Zombie, was it Zombieland? I've never seen Zombieland, so I don't know. But I think he was. I think he did make a guest appearance. He in was that. in it, but nobody knew until the movie, and he was a zombie, or they thought he was a zombie, or something. It was so like That's in so the good. movie theater, it was like a big hush hush. Like, don't tell anybody Bill Murray's in this movie. Oh my gosh, I feel like that's like when Will Ferrell was in Wedding Crashers, right? Like nobody knew he was. Oh, gonna like be towards in the it. end, yeah. <laughs> with the meatloaf situation. Oh. Yeah, I liked that. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I've only seen lost in translation of these films. Yeah. Um, so number one, so I got this like list of like things that make a Sophia movie from screen rant. And I think they did, they did a really good job of discussing what makes her films very unique. So number one is that she typically follows a young female protagonist and she follows them at big turning points in their lives. But, and it's usually kind of, a. Early to late, like teenage to like early twenties, like that kind of time. Young period. adult, yeah, young adult. Um, number two, her films are not usually driven by plot, but they're driven by themes, and usually those themes uh, are surrounding teen culture and loneliness. Mm. Number three, there is always a character who is an insomniac. There's a saying that no one ever gets a good night's sleep in a Sofia Coppola movie. <laughs> Uh, and number four, you learn about a character's emotions by the visuals of the film. So rather than a character saying like, oh, I'm so lonely, you just see a lot of scenes of them doing things by themselves and mainly when there are a ton of people surrounding them, mm. you know? So it's kind of like that thing of like where you feel totally by yourself, even in the most crowded room. Like she loves shit like that. So she's big on like show, don't tell. Yes. Mm-hmm. I like that. 
Uh, and her characters are very often staring outside of windows looking sad. <laughs> um, but most importantly, it's usually in the backseat of a car. That is her signature shot. Like someone's in the backseat of a car, their head's resting up against the window. It's probably raining. Um, and it's funny because when she didn't have a car for Marie Antoinette, she made it the backseat of a gilded carriage. <laughs> If you know your your look. Yeah. She gets it. Um, this is also reflected in the colors of the movies. There are a lot of muted colors and pastels, and she tries as often as she can to use natural light when filming. Um, and she tries to make all of her movies on film rather than digital. Um, and people say that she shoots her movies like paintings or photographs. So she leaves a lot of space for viewers to put their own understanding onto the characters. You know, like she's not afraid to like let someone like there's a scene in somewhere where he's like in a pool and he just kind of like floats. And then he's just like kind of half in the shot for a bit, you know, and, and he like, like keeps floating away. Yeah. Just kind of keeps floating away. But like, that's all very intentional and it's supposed to be like, you could take a still of any part of one of her movies and it could be like a gorgeous photo. And these are all the things that make her stand out from her very famous father and his movies. Francis Ford Coppola obviously made all the Godfather movies. He makes big, loud movies with action and violence, whereas Sophia makes subdued indie films and focuses on the artistic nature of the film rather than the action. But I also like that everything we said about Sophia and her trademarks we can also pick out times in every one of her movies where she is diverted away from those themes. Like we said, her movies don't have a lot of action, but The Beguiled has a lot of action and movement and stuntmen and gore. It's like almost like a horror movie sometimes. And Marie Antoinette is not muted at all. The colors the are bright, incredibly bright, bright. vivid. And Somewhere is not about a lonely woman. It's about a lonely man protagonist. And the bling ring was shot on digital, not on film, because it would it looked better because it was so much more glitzy than the other films. Mm. So I like that every project she does, she kind of picks a new way to challenge herself. And she does something a little different while also staying very true to herself, which I think is very cool. In 2011, Sophia married Thomas Mars. He is a French musician who is the lead singer of the band Phoenix, which I was excited to hear because I love that band. I was very into them in high school. <laughs> they have two daughters, Romy and Cosima, and currently live in New York. Sophia has tried to keep a low public profile for the sake of her daughters and their privacy, but she did recently make a cameo in the latest uh, season of... <laughs> What is that? What we do in the shadows. <laughs> she was with her husband and some other guy who's like a director, I think. I don't know. People were excited to see him. I didn't know who he was. <laughs> um, so I'm sorry. Um, and according to Wikipedia, she is currently working on a new movie. Now, to be clear, nepotism is clearly present in her story. She definitely had a leg up in the industry that most people, especially aspiring directors, especially especially female aspiring directors, <laughs> yes. just don't have. But it also doesn't mean that she's not talented. She has such a clear vision for her films, and I don't think she gets enough credit for writing all the scripts of her movies. Right, the screenwriting. Yeah, because yeah, screen that's what her o Oscar is in. Yeah? Yes. Okay, mm -hmm. yeah. Her writing. Yeah. I think that she represents this kind of specific class of Hollywood elite that 
did get a helping hand in the industry, but are also talented or in their are talented in their own right. She reminds me a lot of someone like Maya Hawk, the daughter of two very famous people, very famous, Ethan and Uma. And but Maya Hawk works really hard and is actually extremely talented. Like I think that Maya Hawk and Sofia Coppola would have been famous in their own right regardless but they didn't have to do all those extra steps right you know but i also they're still talented you know and i think as long as people like that acknowledge their privilege then you're fine Mm -hmm. like i i don't you know and also as long as you also make space for people who have not been given those same helping hands i think it's Mm -hmm. the problem that we see a lot in like large universities like i brought earlier it's like yeah we can accept people who have family legacies but we need to create space for Mm -hmm. people who don't have family legacies because that doesn't mean that they're not worth it to be here yeah so exactly yeah i don't necessarily think that i mean nepotism comes with a negative connotation but i like you're always going to help out your family. Like yeah. blood is thicker than water. Like that's how it is. But also we have to create space for that water. Yeah, exactly. So this is all to say that I am happy that Sophia Coppola is here. Yeah. I think she's a powerful force and I love that she tells these predominantly female stories because it feels a lot like that was pro- she tells talks a lot about loneliness. and That's probably how she felt being a young girl growing up in this Hollywood world with a famous father you know like that's probably how she felt all the time like I'm surrounded by a ton of people I have anything I could want but I'm still feeling like this like Mm. why just exploring those themes Mm -hmm. um and uh, I just I hope that she keeps it up and keeps talking about I don't know young girls and how hard (laughs) it is to be a young girl (laughs) (laughs) somebody has to somebody's got to oh my gosh Um, that was so beautiful yeah so that's it yeah it's not it's one of those things i felt uncomfortable with this story because i'm not like a movie buff you know but i appreciate especially her type of movies because she loves like the kind of like smaller indie kind of thing yeah which is really cute anything that turns into a cult classic means that there was some artistic shit happening yes exactly Yeah. yeah so yeah so that's it Oh my gosh. All right. Okay. Let's get another drink. We'll be right back. We are back. We're back with an interesting looking drink. It's so <laughs> interesting and weird. Um, do you want to know what it is? Yes, I do. It's called Kate the Great. And it is a combination. So you take bourbon and lemoncello and shake it over ice in a Mm -hmm. shaker. And you pour that in the bottom of a Tom Collins glass. I really wanted it to be in like a tall old Hollywood Tom Collins glass over ice. And then you pour ginger beer on top. Uh But then you take one like spherical ice cube and rest it on top. And then just put seven things of bitters floating on top of your drink and just leave it there don't stir it in okay your first sip has to be with the bitters and then you can start in all right all right let's do it kate the great cheers Cheers. that is interesting it is very interesting now i am gonna stir the bitters yeah (laughs) 
<laughs> um, and it's, I mean, it's weird because it's not a ton of alcohol. It yeah. was like an ounce and a half of bourbon and... We got um, both of our cocktails are kind of light tonight. Yeah. Oh my gosh. We're being wild. It's kind of <laughs> orange when you stir it all together. It's a very pretty color. It's peach. Mm-hmm. Um, how's it taste all stirred? Is it okay? Yeah, it's good. Mm-hmm. It almost has like an anise flavor. Hmm. I don't know where that's coming from. Yeah, I don't know. It's just <laughs> cello, bourbon, and ginger beer wild. and then the bitters. Mm, Ooh, so what do you know about Catherine Hepburn? Okay. I know that she was very bold and brash and kind of sassy. And she like played golf, I think. And I always just picture her as a woman who just like didn't take any shit from men and just kind of like ran with the boys. And I, (laughs) I know that she was in that movie with that like animal, like called like bringing up baby or something. It was like a leopard or something. Um, and yeah, that's and she was in uh, uh, Little Women, uh-huh. and that's about it. I don't. Good. She's one of those people who I Good. feel like I should know more about. Yeah, but I've never taken the time to really get in there. Yeah, <laughs> Catherine Hepburn is so interesting. And I, honestly, when I started this week, I was not excited about this research. I was really? like, I don't really feel like dipping into like old Hollywood. It was just like hard Mm -hmm. and I was like I know it's going to be hard but I actually I ended up really liking it because it's nothing like the other old Hollywood stars we do really so different from them that it was shocking to me so my sources are I um watched the documentary Catherine Hepburn the great Kate true story documentary and then I read pieces of her autobiography called me and I watched this YouTube video about her sexuality and I read a lot of like 10 things you don't know about Katherine Hepburn but I always do that last and Mm -hmm. I always know all the things by that point cool so (laughs) here we go all right let's do it Catherine Hepburn was born on May 12th 1907 in Hartford Connecticut that was made up for Gilmore Girls (laughs) as the second of six children um so she's second oldest all her brothers and sisters there's lots of them her dad was Thomas Hepburn and he was a urologist in Hartford Hospital and her mom also, Catherine Hepburn <laughs> was a feminist campaigner. What does that mean? We're going to get there. <laughs> okay. So both of her parents fought for social change in the United States. Her dad helped establish the New English, New England Social Hygiene Association, which educated the public about venereal disease. <gasps> important so he's in connecticut all these socialite women start coming to him and they're like something's going on and he checks them out and he's like oh baby you have gonorrhea (laughs) and they're like how that couldn't happen that's impossible turns out they like all start looking into it and all of their husbands are cheating on them with sex workers at this local brothel so all the women in the community are getting these venereal diseases oh no crazy so then her mom headed connecticut's women's suffrage association and later campaigned for birth control and legalized abortion with margaret sanger what her mom so 
her mom. Her mom was in the streets in Hartford, Connecticut every day with signs yelling about women's rights and yelling about voting. She was at protests and little baby Catherine was always with her while her mom is out there demonstrating for votes for women. She was raised to exercise her freedom of speech and encouraged to think and debate as much as she wanted to, regardless of whether she was a boy or a girl. She had multi-gendered siblings and they were all encouraged the same. Because her parents were often criticized by the community (laughs) for their progressive views, it really stimulated Catherine to be different and to fight against any barriers that were put in her way. Um, but there was a big, uh, we don't talk to the Hepburns uh-huh. vibe in Connecticut. Emily Gilmore's not coming over for martinis. <laughs> they are not part of the DAR. <laughs> Catherine recalls, though, in her autobiography that she was conscious at a very young age of the remarkableness of her parents. Like she knew very young that she was lucky and that her upbringing was the foundation of her life. Like she was a very happy person in her family. That's awesome. She did remain close to them her entire life. She has multiple nieces and nephews and younger siblings who she just love, love, loves. Young Catherine was categorized as a tomboy. And you all know, I hate that word because that just means you're a girl. Mm Um, but Catherine was a little bit different. She liked to call herself Jimmy. People called her Jimmy and she cut her hair so short that it was shaved off pretty much. And her parents didn't care because they didn't feel like fighting with a young girl with tangly hair. We Mm -hmm. know how that is. Mm -hmm. You know, my daughter knows it's crazy. Um, she said in an interview later in life, I hated being a girl. I hated hated it and i think it's just a product of the time of what girls were expected to do um i don't want to put those words on her but it seemed like she was just frustrated with her limitations in society right it's different when uh there is a difference between like i don't like this gender role that i'm ascribed or i don't like this gender that i'm ascribed right and it seemed to me that she didn't like her gender role yeah exactly but i am not a hundred percent sure so i don't want to put that on her Mm -hmm. but her dad was really eager for his children to use their minds and bodies to the limit he taught all of his children to swim to run to dive to ride to wrestle to play golf to play tennis she was an active active girl and golf was a passion of Catherine's and she took daily lessons and actively like reached to be better. She even was in the semifinals of the Connecticut young women's golf championship. Wow. Yeah. (laughs) This is like Jacqueline Bouvier being a horse girl. Like she was really into it. I love that there was even a league for her to be a part of. Oh, I know. And like shocking to me. 10 or whatever. Yeah. Crazy. She loved swimming in the Long Island Sound and took ice baths every morning because she believed the bitter the medicine, the better it was for you. Is that why there are so many bitters in this drink? Well, that and her attitude, baby. (laughs) (laughs) She is a bitter lady, and I love it. But up through old age, she swam every day in New York City, even outside in the winter. Oh, my gosh. She's insane. That's crazy. But she had a kick-ass immune system. (laughs) Really good. I mean, that's why she lasted so damn long. 
She was also a fan of movies from a very young age and went to see one every Saturday night. And then, of course, like little kids do, they put on plays in their neighborhood for all their families and friends. But Catherine charged 50 cents a ticket to see her plays (laughs) because to her, it was about making the money. And then that money was raised for the Navajo people. What? When she was a kid? A kid. Everybody describes her in every documentary, every YouTube video I saw as a ball of energy, just aggression, loud, Mm. unstoppable energy from the time she was a child to the time she was an adult. People who knew her in all stages of life. In March 1921, Catherine was 13 years old and her and her older brother, who was she was so close with, they were the two oldest, Mm -hmm. went to um, visit their mom's friend in New York City in Greenwich Village. And the two older siblings were there to have like just a time of it. They were going to be in New York. They were going to have a blast. And they went out on the town and they came home and went to bed. And in the morning, Catherine woke up. And found her brother's body. He had taken his own life. Oh, my God. He had tied himself to a beam and hanged himself. And um, the Hepburn family just simply denied that it was suicide. And they maintained that Tom's death was an experiment that had gone wrong. And the family never spoke about it again. Oh, my God. And that is not a way to help a child get through trauma. No. And this wound would travel with Catherine for the rest of her life. You can see it in the decisions she continuously makes. Um, she, it made her nervous. She was moody. She was suspicious and angry. I mean, she was a 13-year-old girl yeah. when this happened. Um, She's always speaking her mind, but people found her to be a loud and bitter and not an agreeable woman because she was raised to have an open mind. Mm -hmm. And then she lived through this trauma and was taught not to trust people. And it it's very hard for her. She shied away from other children at this point. Mm -hmm. She dropped out of school and was tutored privately for years. She used her brother's birthday, November 8th, instead of her own, making her two years older than she actually was. Um, it wasn't until 1991 in her autobiography that we knew what her true birthday was. What? She went under her brother's birthday for like 70 years. That is wild. Yeah. Especially because like every time they're celebrating you, only you know what is going on underneath. Right. Okay. So in 1924, she ends up going to Bryn Mawr College and she attended because her mom wanted her to go there. Her mom went there and her mom fought really hard to get in because her mom was like one of the first girls to like be admitted there. So she goes and it was the first time she had been in school with people for years. She's really self-conscious. She's uncomfortable with her peers. She tries to go to the dining hall in the first couple of weeks and felt like a huge spotlight syndrome on herself. Like mm-hmm. everybody's looking at me. Everybody thinks I'm weird. She mm-hmm. wouldn't eat there. Um, and after being homeschooled for so long, she actually really struggled with the scholastic demands of a university and was even suspended for smoking in her room. Like she was not getting on well. But in college, she started to be drawn to acting. But the roles in college were conditional on grades. So she had to get her act together. So she did and began performing regularly. 
during her senior year, she was the lead role in the woman in the on the moon uh, or the woman in the moon. And she got positive responses and it only made her want to do it more. And I want to be clear, her dad was very, very open minded, but he did not think acting was a good career for his daughter. Because remember where he mm-hmm. comes from, that kind of means you're a sex worker. Yeah. Um because she was born in 1907. Yeah. So this is like, he was born in like 18 something when that like actually kind of was what it meant. So it was very difficult for him to stomach this. Yeah. In 1928, she graduated with a degree in history and philosophy and was determined to become an actress. So she went to Baltimore. No, <laughs> the worst place to be an actor. Exactly. <laughs> she found this guy who was in charge of a production called the Zarina, and he liked her and cast her, and it received good reviews, but it was only like a one-week thing. Mm-hmm. And then she was given this other part a following week, but it got far less favorable favorable reviews stage plays oh because they're all stage plays and um in fact she was i think at this time most of movies were still silent like they were moving into talkies but she's definitely all stage right now okay um a lot of the reviews called her shrill so she (sighs) left baltimore and went to new york to get a voice tutor because she wanted to change the way that she spoke The guy who she came down to Baltimore to meet, Edwin, went up to New York to produce his next show um, and appointed Catherine as the lead role uh, or understudy to the lead role. Mm -hmm. But a week before opening night, the lead was fired and (gasps) Catherine took over the role as the lead character after like four weeks of acting. She's Mm -hmm. the lead character. Opening night, it's terrible. <gasps> she mixes up her lines. She's oh, tripping no. over her feet. She's saying things too quickly. She's fired, of <gasps> course. Like, they don't want her yeah. in this role. And she's kind of undeterred by this and just keeps going to these other producers and accepting roles. And she's on stage and a lot of the plays are shitty. Like, they're closing after, like, eight nights. Ugh. Um And the first eight or so years of her career are like this. She's getting plays. She's trying her hardest. She's doing her best, but they're not good. Um, And then she, like, decides, I'm going to marry my college acquaintance. This is the way most people said it. College acquaintance. Ludlow Ogden Smith. And she's like, I'm going to stop working and I'm going to marry this guy. Now, of course, she very quickly missed working and like went right back to working. Um, But she also made him change his name to S. Ludlow Ogden because she didn't want to be Kate Smith because it was too plain. She's like, I'm going to change my last name, but your last name can't be Smith. So move the Smith to the front. I'm not going to lie. We know a Katie Smith. So. We do. <laughs> there, there's a lot of Katie Smiths in this world, and she was about to be one of them. Um, also, she's so sweet. When people would call her Catherine and stuff in interviews, she would be like, don't be so formal. Call me Kate. <laughs> she's really so cute. cute. So Kate the Great. Um, okay. So I am not going to list everything she was in from 1928 oh. to 1932 because she was fired and understudies and a drama got drama tutors and was told she wasn't good and blah, 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 blah. Finally, she's cast in a play where she's good. Mm. It's called The Warrior's Husband. And it's ideal. It's kind of like a Trojan era. It required an actress who was aggressive with energy and had Ooh. athleticism, which is what she had. Yeah. Her first entrance in the play, she jumps down this narrow 
staircase wearing like a short silver like Trojan style tunic uh-huh. and like has to perform her roles. And one of the reviews says it's been many a night since so glowing a performance has brightened the Broadway scene. Wow. A scout for Hollywood ends up coming to see this play and spotted her and was like, OK, I think you need to be in the show called A Bill for Divorcement. He's impressed. He's like, this odd creature needs to come back to Hollywood with us. And the thing is, she's an odd creature because she's not ladylike. That's why people pick Catherine Hepburn for roles. She demands. She's like, if I'm coming to Hollywood and I'm going to have this temporary agreement, I demand $1,500 a week, which is a large amount for an unknown actress. Yeah. But they accept it and sign a temporary contract. And they said later on, they took a tremendous chance on her. Yeah. Tremendous chance. Her move to Hollywood also brought about her divorce though, from her only marriage. Wow. Okay. Only marriage to Ludlow, whose last name was Smith, but isn't Smith anymore. They were married from the time she was 21 to the time she was 29. She often expresses her gratitude towards him later Mm -hmm. in her life. Um, because he gave her financial and moral support when she was in all of those shitty plays. Yeah. And she often calls herself a terrible pig for the way she treated him and like used him. But they did remain friends until his death in 1979. That's nice. It is. Do we know if he married again? Um, I don't, I don't know, know if he married again. Yeah. I know she did not. She had other relationships. Okay. Um, and her sexuality is in question. Okay. But he, he I, I don't know if he did. Yeah. I'm sure he did. Yeah, I would think so. Yeah. They were young. They were Mm -hmm. like in their 20s. Yeah. So she goes to, before they divorce, she goes to California. She's in Hollywood. She's 25 years old. She stars in a bill for divorcement. She had to learn to translate from stage to film. So like they sign her to this long-term contract because they like it. The director of that movie ends up having her in 10 of his movies because directors love doing that with their actors. Mm -hmm. Um, But she didn't suffer through the unmarried young Hollywood thing. She came in at 25. The studios couldn't make her go on fake dates. She had a very different life than a lot of the young women in Hollywood where she was married and established and an actress when she showed up. Her next two movies really cemented her as a Hollywood success. She was good on screen at playing strong women. Mm -hmm. And that was interesting because not everybody could do that. Um, And for all the other women, they were usually typecast as sex symbols in this time in history. And Hepburn just was not. They didn't typecast her ever as a sex symbol like a lot of the women. For her third movie, her third movie of all time she's nominated for an academy award for best actress she was really unsure if she was gonna win so she goes to europe instead of going to the oscars and this is the first time and she wins god damn it and she is not even there to get her award and this becomes a habit of Catherine. why did she doesn't go why to the oscars why So some people interpret it as some sort of statement against the industry. But to me, it seems like she doesn't like large crowds. Mm. They make her uncomfortable. Mm. She doesn't like to dress up. 
she is very famous for wearing pants all around Hollywood when all mm-hmm. these other women were wearing beautiful ball gowns. Like, this is the, like, pre-Marilyn Monroe era. We're talking, like, Ginger Rogers, mm-hmm. golden age of Hollywood. And she is just bouncing around in trousers. And yeah. people cannot understand what she's doing. Why is her hair so short? Why is she in pants? Why isn't she acting famous? Why isn't she out with all these men? And yeah. she just didn't want to deal with the Oscars. Well, because I'm sure, like, there are so many questions that come up if you tr- go to the Oscars in a certain fashion. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, so rather, I I guess she would rather answer the one question of, like, why weren't you there mm-hmm. than answer the 20 questions about why did you wear that? Why did you come with that person? Or why did you come alone? And, like, so that makes sense. And the problem is because of this type of attitude, she kind of gets people have the perception of her that she was holier than thou. Like I'm better than you. And this is why I'm not going to the Oscars. This is why I'm not taking interviews, but I think there's something deeper there. I think it made her uncomfortable and she didn't want to. Mm -hmm. So, um, as we mentioned, uh, on this show before (laughs) she was in the 1933 version of little women right after that. And the movie was, a hit as it is every time it comes every out. <laughs> the film was one of her personal favorites of her career, and she was so very proud of the performance. She later said, I defy anyone to be as good of a Joe as I was. <laughs> because, a very Joe thing to say. Uh huh. Because I think she does <laughs> think she's Joe March. She wore pants yeah. and wouldn't get married, and like, I just think she thinks she's Joe March. Yeah. And like, I like that about Catherine Hepburn that she's so connected with Joe March's character. Mm -hmm. So she really wanted to prove herself on Broadway. This is over and over again. This woman is obsessed with Broadway. She's a real (laughs) East coast girl. She's made it in Hollywood. She won an Oscar and she didn't even go. And she's like, but what about Broadway? (laughs) (laughs) It's very important to her. So, the studio is like, we'll give you leave to go to Broadway, but you've got to do this film first. And it is like the worst fucking film of her career. It's called Spitfire. And she's this uneducated mountain girl. <sighs> and everybody gives her these terrible bad reviews. And she's like, she kept a picture of herself in that role in her bedroom for the rest of her life to keep herself humble. Wow. She was like, this is terrible. And then she goes to DC to do this play and she signs on for 10 weeks and it is terrible. Mm. It is terrible. The box office is failing and she has to watch slowly as people stop coming to see this famous woman and the seats are emptying out. And she's so famous, Katie. Can you imagine a worse thing than having to do the same performance every night? And know it's bad. All right. So if you're doing eight shows a week for 10 weeks, for 10 weeks. <laughs> It's 80 shows. It's 80 shows. And you have to watch the crowds be disappointed and dwindle. And leave. Oh, and, and talk shit about you. No. Um, so she does end up paying the director $14,000 to get out of the contract and close the show early. But the thing is, Catherine Hepburn can do that. She's yeah. one of the few women in Hollywood and in Broadway that has enough money to say, I'm in charge of my own career. I don't want to do this anymore. I'm going to pay my way out. Mm-hmm. It's like a get out of jail free card, honestly. Yeah. I do want to say here, she was having relationships during this time. 
Um, after divorcing her husband, she dated a director, uh, Leyland Hayward, and he proposed to her, but she said no because she liked to be her own person and their relationship only lasted four years. Um, but all of this spitfire and then the play was really bad. It started a series of shitty roles for her. Um, she was playing like, cause now she's kind of like in her early thirties. Hollywood is in the golden age. They don't quite know what to do with her. So they're casting her as like Mary of Scotland in like these period pieces. And it's one flop after another flop after another flop. She does have one or two good things in there. I mean, she does like, she is still getting nominated for like Oscars, like yeah. during, during and throughout, but there's nothing making money. Yeah. Um, Bad movie after another movie after another movie. This wouldn't have been so bad, though, if she was beloved by the public. But she wasn't. She had a very difficult relationship with the press. She liked her privacy, and she was shy. She would snap at the press regularly and say rude, provocative things because they would ask her, are you going to get married again? Why don't you have children? And she refused to give them interviews and she refused to sign autographs. And she ended up getting the nickname Catherine of Arrogance because they really thought that she was doing it because she was better than them. But she was just fiercely private. No interviews. Wouldn't talk to fans most of her career. She hated the celebrity lifestyle. She thought the social scene was tedious and superficial. The public was baffled by her boyish behavior, her fashion choices, why she wasn't in big dresses, why she never came out, why she didn't go to restaurants, why she would take cameras out of the hands of paparazzi. And it just was bad. It was a bad, bad look. Yeah. I can also understand now why she was so drawn to Broadway because even some of the biggest Broadway stars can kind of go under the radar, under the radar, you know, because it takes a lot for a Broadway person. Like people might recognize like Lin-Manuel Miranda, but that's right. also because he's now surpassed Broadway as it is. You right. Know? Like, mm-hmm. I feel like that's the lifestyle she wanted. I'm mm-hmm. like, I want to act. I want to do my job. I want to get paid. Good at it. I want to get paid, and I don't want to be fucking bothered. Right. Like, and that's probably why she was so keen on doing Broadway all the time. Yeah, I agree. But she knew she needed to make money and be her yeah. own person. So in 1936, she of course vied for the role of Scarlett O'Hara. Now, she goes in, and we know. She wears pants and she's got a feminist attitude and that made her very unattractive to movie producers. Mm-hmm. In fact, they said to her, I can't see Rhett Butler chasing you around for 12 years. <gasps> to be honest, though, like, I don't think she was right for the part. I don't either. She was too strong. Apparently, you, you have to have someone who you believe is like being like a silly little like, girl 16 year old who right. like would marry someone literally out of spite yeah <laughs> yeah exactly and like i just wouldn't buy that for katherine hepburn no she's too strong of a woman and the roles she plays like she does do some damsel in distress stuff but i mean she was in thousands of movies you know it was no. the era where they forced yeah. you to do so many movies but from there she does two movies back to back that got great critical acclaim. They're very, very good. 
One is with Ginger Rogers. One is with Cary Grant. But neither of them are box office hits. And what happens is Hepburn gets listed as an actor who's considered box office poison. Like, she's good. The stories are good. But sorry. You don't make money. And what they're in for in Hollywood is to make money at this point, not to make an artistic film. Yeah. She was offered shitty roles in her contract. And she says, you know what? Fuck it. And pays $75,000 to get out of her contract. Oh. And becomes an independent <sighs> actor. At this time, that was suicide. Yeah. And she is like, you know what? I'm going to do it. And I'm going to do it alone as a woman. Because I can pick my own roles. And I can do my own thing yeah. in my acting life. My own name. My own brand. So she signs on for one film with Columbia Pictures. It doesn't do great. Then another film offers her $10,000 to do a picture. Which is less than at the beginning of her career. And reflecting on her, um, Andrew Britton wrote, no other star has emerged with greater rapidity and with more ecstatic acclaim. No other star either has become so unpopular so quickly for so long. Yeah. But while she's touring, like during this whole like two decade period, she also is doing Jane Eyre on stage. Uh She did well with that. Um, but she starts a relationship with Howard Hughes wow. and they're together for a while. Apparently the tabloids say he also tried to marry her, but she does not want to get married and nothing ever came of it. And they split after she was called box office poison and she kind of quit Hollywood for a while. Yeah. She goes away. Um, so she's failing in the movie scene and that's not enough for Catherine Hepburn. So she takes action action and creates her own comeback vehicle. She leaves Hollywood. And finds a stage project. And the stage project is a brand new play called The Philadelphia Story. <gasps> Wait, like of that Tom ha- No, that's not right. No. Nope. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's different. Sorry. Yeah, it's different. But The Philadelphia <laughs> Story is a very famous stage play. Um, yes, I, I, yes, okay. <laughs> this is tailored to her. It's a humorous woman who's aggressive and nervous and vulnerable. And it was a big hit and played in New York and ran for 417 performances before it got a second tour, like around the U.S. So at this point, a lot of studios are like, Catherine, Catherine, like we want the movie version. And she owned the movie version of the play because she owned herself at this point because she's a fucking awesome woman. It's all paying off now. Yes, it is. After years of disappointment, she's like, oh, now I own myself, bitch. So she has the Philadelphia story. And after everybody offers her everything, she decides to go with big money pot MGM uh, on the condition that she gets to star, she gets to pick the director, and she gets to pick her two co-stars. And they say, okay. Because <laughs> she's Catherine Hepburn. Okay. Um, But she's very shrewd, and she understands the world. And she says, people think that I am too la-di-da, so I cannot come into this movie with grace. She sets it up so that in the first scene in the movie, Cary Grant knocks her flat on her ass. <laughs> And it's funny and people laugh and it makes her likable. And the times review said, come on back, Kate, all is forgiven. Wow. (laughs) Damn. She's again, um, nominated for an Academy award. This is her third nomination. She's only won once. That's her third nomination. Okay. Hepburn's also responsible for her next project, rom-com woman of the year in which she plays opposite Spencer Tracy. 
And um, this began a long-standing relationship. The Tracy Hepburn pairing is similar to Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers. Oh. It's similar to Elizabeth Taylor and Richard Burton. Um, he was married and never left his wife. He was deeply Catholic and had kids with her. They never married because she didn't want to get married. But there, I don't, I don't know what kind of relationship was happening. Okay. It could have been romantic. They definitely dedicated themselves to one another. She, in her autobiography, said it was a unique feeling that I had for Tracy. I would have done anything for him. Wow. But we don't know what that was. He was definitely struggling with alcoholism and insomnia. And alcoholism ended up killing him in, in oh. a little bit. We'll get to that. But their relationship is hard to place. Because since 1930... Rumors had been floating around Catherine that she is a lesbian. And I watched a YouTube video called 150 Women That Catherine Hepburn Slept With. And in 2007, a guy named William released a biography about the actress where he said that he worked for both um, Spencer Tracy and Catherine Hepburn and helped them find lovers on the side. That they were both... Um, either bi or homosexual in some way. And like he was the one helping them find and keep those relationships secret. Some people say Catherine Hepburn was so private because she had something to hide. But her niece, who she was close with, said there's no evidence that she was homosexual. But then in 2017, one of her close friends in a documentary said she absolutely was. Okay. So we just have no idea. So I'm not going to speculate. Her and Spencer Tracy had a passionate relationship whether it was platonic or sexual i have no idea yeah. but it lasted for decades decades and decades yeah have you ever been in a relationship like that with someone who like it was very intense and very strong but like you actually weren't sleeping together i mean i so i don't know that i've ever been in a very intense strong relationship where we weren't sleeping together but like in terms of like um multi-gender like very platonic relationships like I'm very close with Sean yeah. like mm -hmm. and I've never once thought of Sean as anything but right. platonic like he's always mm -hmm. been a brother a friend you know yeah. and I think I don't know I mean I, but I've also definitely been in very strong passionate relationships with women mm -hmm. that are like I'm so drawn to you but I'm maybe not sexually attracted to you yeah I just thinking about like I had that um, I had a very strong relationship with a climbing partner for a while mm -hmm. and it's just striking me from like that similar thing of like literally people at the gym were like gossiping about us mm. because like we were so close we spent all our time together there's this huge age gap and like it was a really weird but like we weren't actually like dating or anything you know but yeah. we spent all of our time together but it was weird you know yeah. so I don't know I was just like it's I just understand that feeling so closely of not being able to, I like, I still can't understand what was going on for that. Right. Like year of my life. <laughs> it's interesting. Yeah. I mean, I definitely, for me, intimacy is about being comfortable in silence. Yeah. So like I, having like a passionate relationship with someone for me is like, how well can we be together without trying? Yeah. Mm -hmm. um but no i have a lot of co-workers i think both male and female that mm -hmm. is like a very intense relationship because you have the same enemy yeah <laughs> you know what i mean <laughs> and i think that that makes you really brave yeah to have the same enemy mm. but very interesting i like this this is a very interesting relationship that she has with 
Yeah. Tracy. Yeah. He is a he's a very cool dude. And um, I think part of his alcoholism is he did feel really guilty about not being the husband and father he wanted to be. I didn't dive too deeply into him. And I don't know if it's because he was cheating on his wife with Catherine Hepburn. Um, but she was very private about her love life. So I'm going to let it stay that way. Yeah. Um, okay. So then something really kind of icky happens and this is just like icky for us. She's cast as a Chinese peasant in a high-budget drama called Dragon Seed. And everybody's, like, really enthusiastic about the film, but it even got criticism then as her being miscast. It is bad. I was watching clips from it, and I was like, this is really uncomfortable. Again, a lot of people at that time were cast in really icky roles. It doesn't excuse it at all, and I don't don't like it. (laughs) Like, I didn't... very uncomfortable. I was like cringing watching <sighs> the footage. Okay. So we know Catherine as an actress of the 20s, 30s, and 40s. But I don't think that she was an actress of the 20s, 30s, and 40s. Because my baby hit her strides in the 50s, 60s, and 70s. She became the first ever older actress to continue in actual roles not as a spinster character she full transitioned she first goes into the african queen where she plays a missionary that was working in africa during world war one now she writes a lot about this in her book (laughs) she fucking hated it there she got dysentery it's the worst but she's nominated again for best actress (laughs) she also does a romantic drama called summertime where she's an older woman that is a love interest which is really crazy and it's a really emotional part and then she plays in Shakespeare plays like around the country she's in the taming of the shrew and 500 other famous plays and it's really interesting because she's really good and she's starting to learn how to do these dynamic pieces of rich older women up to this point she has won one Oscar for best actress one all the rest of hers are after this oh okay all of the rest of hers is what i just (laughs) said but at this point she takes a really long break to care for spencer his alcoholism turned into heart disease and she became his acting nurse she was very respectful of his wife and kids and kept herself out of the tabloids as a romantic partner she did not flaunt their relationship and never spoke about it But then she really gets called to a role by her niece. Her niece wanted to be a part of the famous movie, Guess Who's Coming to Dinner? And Mm -hmm. she wanted Catherine to play her mom. So Catherine plays the mom. Her niece plays the daughter. And the late Sidney Portier plays the man coming to dinner because a black guy is being invited to their house. Catherine was really uptight they say during filming which helped the role because she was supposed to be an uptight white woman because spencer was dying Mm. uh and when they closed filming he lived for 17 days oh my gosh um she was again nominated for best actress for the role and won for the first time in 34 years and she wasn't there to get it She did it. Go. It's very Eminem of her. (laughs) So this is her second best actress for being in Guess Who's Coming to Dinner. And I think she was uptight because her, like, the love of her life, whether friend or lover, was Mm -hmm. dying. Yeah. 
Um, she chose to occupy her time throwing herself into acting after Tracy's death. And the next year, she literally won Best Actress again. Two years in a row. <laughs> and then she jumped right into starring in the Broadway musical Coco about the life of Coco Chanel. She was not a strong singer by <laughs> any means, but, quote, what she lacked, she made up for with guts. <laughs> And she did get a Tony nomination. There you go. For this. Now, funny story. There was a building going up next to the theater. So she told, like, a coworker, go outside, tell the boys every night, we'll signal them because I have to sing this lullaby that's really quiet. And when they signal them again, they can start working. Just tell them, turn the drills off. It's just for, like, the, the matinee shows, like, okay. during the day, not mm-hmm. every night. And they're just like, whatever, bullshit, bullshit. They come back. The guy comes back and he's like, they're not going to do it. She goes, give me 10 minutes. Catherine Hepburn goes out to these construction workers and is like, boys. And she like makes them cookies and shit every Sunday. All the matinee shows or Saturday matinee shows. And for for six months while this show runs, a guy goes outside and whistles. They all stop working. She sings her lullaby. The guy whistles again. And then she keeps. That they keep working Bananas. while the play goes on. <laughs> I can't I believe that. <laughs> that she convinced them to do that. Okay. So in the 70s and 80s, she is actually moving to television, which is interesting because this is like nobody wanted to go from the silver screen yeah. to TV. And she was like, I'm going to do it. Yeah. So she just switched. She jumps onto TV. She's playing devouring mothers and old batty ladies and people start asking her what she's doing and she goes i want to broaden my range while i can try it while i still have time that's she's, a great way to look at it i still have time to do this like let me do it her first time on television was in glass menagerie for which she received an emmy nomination <laughs> of course she did loosen eventually towards the press and did a two hour long interview because she was becoming more open in her older age. Also throughout her career, she became very open politically. She wasn't a communist sympathizer, but she strongly promoted freedom of speech for those who were. She promoted birth control and legal abortion. When people ask if she's a feminist, she goes, absolutely. I'm a feminist. (laughs) And that was when the word was bad (laughs) and even worse than now. She also describes herself as a dedicated Democrat and she considers herself an atheist. She would prop her feet up on tables during interviews and she would walk around barefoot because she did whatever the fuck she wanted. (laughs) She did finally go to the Oscars in 1974, but it wasn't for herself. It was because someone asked her to present a lifetime achievement award and she did joke around with the audience saying, I'm very happy I didn't hear someone call out it's about time in 1976 she was voted favorite motion picture actress by people's choice and in the 1980s she developed this notable tremor giving her a permanently shaky head Mm. um and she didn't work for a couple years and said i've had my day let the kids scramble and sweat it out (laughs) then jane fonda purchased the rights to this movie called On Golden Bond about an old married couple who are dealing with aging. And she's like, I'm going to, I'm going to star in it, Jane Fonda. And my dad is going to play her famous dad, Henry. Talk Fonda. about nepotism. Her uh-huh. famous dad, Henry is going to play the dad role. And she's like, Catherine, can you play my mom? Mm. And Catherine's like, okay. She's in her eighties. Catherine's in her eighties when she plays this role. 
and she gets her fourth Oscar <laughs> for best actress. Her fourth. And made her third male co-star get an Oscar for best actor. Wow. She's had men who, when she was nominated, they won. Yeah. And she didn't. Mm-hmm. So Catherine, at this point, had really cemented herself as one of America's best love actors. And the New York Times said that she had learned how to breathe unchallengeable unchallenge- <laughs> life. That's a hard word. Yeah. <laughs> into lifeless lines. In 1991, she released her biography, Me, Stories of My Life, (laughs) which topped the bestsellers list for over a year. Oh, my God. Needless to say, she acted and acted and acted, and she did her final role on the TV film One Christmas, for which she received a SAG Award nomination when she was 87 years old. In her 80s, she said she had no fear of death. Towards the end of her life, she lived in a small town in Long Island or in Fenwick um, and swam and lived a common life with her siblings and her nieces and nephew. Her nephew lived with her for a really long time. He's in a lot of her documentaries. Mm -hmm. Her health began to deteriorate not long after her final screen appearance. And she was hospitalized in March of 1993 for exhaustion. And then again in 1996 for pneumonia. She started to become really, really weak and uh, was speaking and eating very little, and it was feared she would die. In her final few years, she also showed signs of dementia, which was sad. But in 2003, an aggressive tumor was found on her neck, and she made the decision (sighs) to not intervene. She died from cardiac arrest June 29th, 2003, one month after her 96th birthday. Oh, my. She requested that there be no memorial service, but only that the lights of Broadway be dimmed for the evening. Her items were put up for auction in New York City and earned $5.8 million that Hepburn willed to her family. She had relentless energy and enthusiasm for life, and that's often cited in biographies about her, that she was headstrong, um, but she was controlling and bossing bossy but also like had humor and humanity and people who lived near her towards the end of her life said you would never know that she was the most famous actress in Hollywood because she just walked into the grocery store in khakis and sandals and did what everybody else did to be clear quantitatively she is considered the best actress of all time because she was nominated for more actor awards than anyone else with 12 oh my And she's the only person to ever win four Oscars for Best Actress. So 12 nominations for Best Actress, four wins. Uh, She also spoke six languages and won Woman of the Year one year. Wow. Okay. But (laughs) she once said, life is hard. After all, it kills (laughs) you. And that's Catherine Hepburn. Wow. Amazing. Isn't that amazing? I did not expect that. I did not expect any of that. I thought it was going to be so much more Golden Girl of Hollywood. Like, I was sexually assaulted mm -hmm. and they didn't know what to do with me. I was expecting more of like a Rita Hayworth story. Yes. And I also think that maybe in my mind, because I think that they look similar, like, I think that she looks like the almost like harsher, more masculine version of Rita Hayworth. Yeah. She has definitely a more masculine face. Yeah. But that is fascinating. I think her story is crazy. That's why I was like, I was going into it and I was like, I'm not excited about this. (laughs) And then I was like, oh, I'm so excited about this. Oh, that's great. All right. Well, we need to talk about these two women in conversation with each other. 
in a little segment we like to call Just the Two of Us. Okay. I mean, from the get-go. They well, had horoscopes a- first or no? Oh, Later. yes. I'm okay. sorry. Yes, you're right. So I did her actual birthday, not her brother's birthday. Perfect. Just okay. so we're clear. <laughs> so do you want me to read mine? Yes, I want you to read yours. Okay. So she was born May the 12th, 1907. So she's a Taurus. We've been doing <gasps> a lot of Taurus women. Yes. Okay. What is happening? What Mine's is- a Taurus. Ah! <laughs> okay. So it says... May 12th are not so much leaders as they are guides. They're eager to show others the world through their eyes. They appreciate the serious aspects of life, even though they seem to be caught up in living it. They have boundless energy and give equal amounts to both work and play. Wait, her birthday is May 12th? Yeah. That's so funny. Mine is May 14th. (gasps) Is it the same horoscope? Yeah. Well, no, I chose it. I did a different direction. Okay. But I like that. So... I was like having a hard time finding it for like May 14th, 1971. So I just picked the May 14th Taurus horoscope for this past year. So this is what it says. This is a moderate day. You can feel good about your professional growth and put more efforts to achieve your long-term goals. Some pay boost and appreciation (laughs) from seniors may also increase your self-confidence and fill you with positivity. Avoiding, av- avoid choosing shortcuts to make quick money as you may end up a victim of online fraud. Very specific. Whoa. <laughs> you should enjoy your good health and use your energy in doing something worthy and creative. So that was very specific to 2022. Yeah, but I like it. Stuff. But I also think it was, um, you know, because I don't think Sophia Coppola does use shortcuts mm-hmm. in her film making technique no yeah maybe not how she became a director yeah but, but no the way she does it she does but it again, for her we don't fault her for that no it's not her fault she's born a famous director okay so but that's the thing we need to talk about encouraging dads i think first and foremost yeah that's so cool that both of them had fathers that were more encouraging than like Maybe a lot of other girls, especially for Catherine's time period, had. Oh, yeah. That's unreal. Her dad was uh, definitely progressive, and he, like his wife, was very progressive. And together, they were just a duo that Catherine got to witness. Yeah. Oh, that's so cool. And I think that that's a big part of both of their stories, is the worlds that they were entrenched in when they were young, I think, formed them so much Mm -hmm. you know Mm -hmm. and just their family lives but but i also think that that led to them having a bit of a theme in sophia's movies of teenage isolation you know feeling alone in a crowded space you know you talked about Catherine going to you know school and Bryn Mawr and then like going into the lunchroom and feeling like oh my gosh there's so many people around but i don't know what to do. I feel so fucking alone. And I think Sophia felt that a lot in her young Hollywood years of like, I'm literally surrounded by people all the time. (laughs) I feel very lonely. And she puts that in her movies. And I feel like Catherine can really put that in her performances too, of like those kinds of base feelings. Yeah. I think they both, um, Having a having the alone theme, I wrote it down too, that being alone and being lonely. And I think what's interesting about Katherine Hepburn is she liked being mm-hmm. alone as far as we could tell. She yeah. didn't like the press. She said she loved being famous, but she hated the press. Like mm. she just didn't want to deal with that. Yeah. And a lot of people become famous 
for the press. And this is where I think they're similar. Mm-hmm. They are East Coast girls, oh. both of them. Yes. Absolutely. And there is a very big distinction between East Coast fame and West Coast fame. And it's not that one's better or worse, but it is different. Well, and it's funny because everyone says Sophia could have been a West Coast fame kind of girl. She could have been like a Paris Hilton. Like, no dig on Paris Hilton. She's mm-hmm. doing her fucking thing. But wasn't but, she in New York too? Aren't all the... aren't all the Hilton I think but I always think of Paris Hilton as like a California girl and for all intents and purposes Sophia grew up was raised in California right but she seems like an East Coast girl she seems like an East Coast girl and she lives in New York now like she just gives off that vibe right and I think it's because she was at in the mid 90s she's at that point and she's like I could just be famous for famous's sake like a West Coast kind of fame I feel like we always talk shit about the West Coast. I'm sorry, guys. No, I don't think we that's bad. Like, no, West Coast not. fame is just different just from different. East Coast fame. And then I think she's like, or I could do my own thing mm-hmm. and, like, create something that's very much me. And I could do this. And she chose that path, the harder right. path that, right. like, was made easier for her. You know, she did not struggle as much as Catherine Hepburn did in the beginning. You know? And I, I think a lot about, like, their bad reviews. Catherine, I put that to the worst actress thing. Worst actress. Yeah. I loved that. Catherine Hepburn got so many bad reviews. <laughs> so many. She was bad. She was not a good actress. No. But she worked at it. Both from, you know, the public and like in her public persona and her on stage persona. Mm-hmm. She got mm-hmm. a lot of bad reviews. And I think about Sophia having this moment when she is still a young woman. And she does this thing for her dad. And then she gets totally slaughtered in the press. And like, yeah, that sucks. But I love that both of them were like, okay, okay, (laughs) whatever. So I was bad in that play. I was bad in that movie, whatever. Because they both had faith that it wasn't the only thing that they were going to be known for. And I think that that is a very unique mindset. (laughs) Yeah, I think so too. And I just, I really liked the idea that Sophia is telling female stories and then I found it absolutely bananas, right? That in the midst of these female stories, mm-hmm. I'm obviously doing Katherine Hepburn. You mentioned Winona Ryder and Emma Watson, which are in <gasps> all three versions of, of Little, Little Women. Women. <laughs> Can you believe that? It's the three separate versions. I was like, holy shit it's so funny because i thought about doing greta gerwig this week too because (laughs) i was thinking about like female directors that i love right you know and uh, greta gerwig is obviously one of them and and she directed the last one it's just so crazy that like a woman from each of the little women cast was talked about in this story yeah Oh my gosh, that's bananas. I didn't even think about that. So women, Sorry, Sarsha, we didn't talk about you. Women's but. stories are so <laughs> womanly. Yeah, no, they they absolutely are. And it's funny that we're talking about that because I also was thinking about, I feel like Sophia could do like a Katherine Hepburn uh, biopic very well. Yes. Because Katherine Hepburn seems so much to me like she could be a Sophia Coppola character. Oh yeah. Of like, you see what's on the outside and like we all remember her as a glamorous starlet but we don't really see what's going on underneath and i think sophia coppola would be a great person to do her biopic because we don't need everything to be 
you know, a hundred percent of the time or accurate. Like I would love for her to do like a Marie Antoinette style biopic of Catherine and like really show what she's emotionally going through because that's, what's important to both of them. Mm. It's like, what's real. Mm -hmm. Okay. What the fuck is real in, (laughs) in this fake world of Hollywood? Yeah. Because I don't think either of them are interested in telling these fake stories no you know like a lot of um like i was thinking about the movie somewhere that sophia made it was about uh a guy who reaches fame in hollywood but like you only you don't see what i don't i haven't seen the movie but like Mm. it's all about him being on the press junkets and him being like depressed and like him being sad and like you know then trying to take care of his daughter and like i feel like sophia likes to look at the backstage of things and Catherine was living it, Mm. you know, and she wasn't trying to be anyone else but who she fucking was. And, you know, it's interesting to me, too, that, like, you know, you talked about, like, Catherine, like, not having technically a whole lot of box office hits. And neither does Sophia. No. You think about, like, Sophia really predominantly does indie movies Mm -hmm. that are limited release or by like a 24 or like these smaller kind of productions that make a big impact still, but maybe on fewer people. Right. And I feel like that was, I don't know. It, it, I think that's important, but I also Mm -hmm. found that like the, um, what was it called? Virgin suicides. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I found that to be so interesting that one of her first, like, fictional films was something that was so traumatic in Catherine's life Mm -hmm. that it's like, this is a real thing. It is a real story that girls deal with that I'm Mm -hmm. trying to tell. Mm -hmm. And that is something that Catherine lived. And I think that people forget that like young girls do deal with the backlash of people taking their own life. Young children in general Mm -hmm. deal with the backlash of people taking their own lives because it is like, I mean, it's the number one killer amongst like teens. Mm -hmm. So I just think it's important to tell that story. And Catherine was not given the right to talk about that story. And Sophia did it. Yeah. She talked about the story that people needed to hear, even though it was fiction, it didn't matter because kids need to hear that. Yeah. When I think about the, you said the first time that she talked about it was in her memoir, me, mm-hmm. which came out when she was a much older woman, yeah. you 1991. know, and Sophie made her movie in 99. Right. Like that's not that big of a lapse, yeah. you know? And it's also interesting to me that, you know, Catherine Hepburn passed away in the year 2003 where Sophia's career was really taking off. Yeah, I wrote that down, 2003. Yeah, 2003. It's a very interesting, uh, I don't know, we talk about all the Oscars that Catherine won, all the awards, and that was when Sophia got her first nomination. Oscar. And her first, like, all her nominations right. and everything. Like, well, I mean, Catherine herself has more Oscars than women altogether directors. <laughs> Isn't that crazy? Yeah, that is crazy. That's super fucking crazy. <laughs> I don't even know how to handle that. I don't know how to handle that situation. Oh my gosh. But, and I also think there are two women who are, they're not, they weren't, afraid of broadening their range on purpose uh-huh. you know i was thinking about how Catherine's was like of course i'll do tv like i want to do whatever i want to do all the things because she wasn't afraid to put herself out there and right. even though sophia had these has these trademarks of hers she's also not afraid to like 
kick one to the curb and like try something new. And I think that's so important for people, especially in places like the film industry, mm. you know, cause it's scary to do. <laughs> Dear God. And it, yeah, you could get a bad review, but I think both of these women would agree that an occasional bad review is worth it. If you feel like you're putting out stuff that you like and going into business for yourself with also both of them. Both of them did. did. Yeah. <laughs> They're so cool. They are cool. I love them. I, I'm really glad we did this movie industry episode. Yeah, I love it. Especially because it's coming from both directions, yeah. you know, which is such a unique take. Um, to perfect. pat ourselves on the back. Yes. <laughs> okay. Are you ready to toast? I am. Who are you going to toast this evening? I just want to toast the longevity of women. Mm. I did not realize that Katherine Hepburn earned most of her Oscars when she had wrinkles and age and I just think that that's amazing that she sucked as an actress for four four decades yeah and then she really hit it home when Mm -hmm. she was older and I think it just gives us a reminder that you're not done when you stop like this is going to sound negative and I don't mean it that way but you're not done when you stop being like a sex appeal no like you're not done like women age just the same way men do yeah like a fine wine all of us absolutely so keep going ladies what do you got i'm going to toast um women who feel alone in a crowd of people because i feel like that is such an intense feeling that i think everyone has experienced you know you know one time in their life, you know, and it sucks. And I'm glad that Sophia is giving a voice to that feeling of, you know, just, I don't know, isolation. And I, it watching her kind of clips and everything like that this week was like really hitting it home for me of like, what a unique feeling that she has somehow managed to capture <laughs> time and time again. Um, but the good thing is that it is also often fleeting. Mm. so but cheers Cheers. to you if you're feeling that because it's common (laughs) it is common all right so what are you enjoying in pop culture this week so i mean just the new season of the british bake off oh yes and i really like it and i'm glad it's back and if anybody's never watched the show before there are three challenges nobody wins the show (laughs) (laughs) somebody wins but you don't win anything and it's really nice because people help each other and it's fun you learn a lot of fun baking words Mm -hmm. and i'm a terrible baker so it's really (laughs) nice and i just like it it makes me want to sit and just be in the english countryside so i just if you've never watched it before just go ahead and just paul hollywood it up yeah it's so good it's so Mm. good and cheesy and dumb and i love it (laughs) okay what are you gonna promo so you know it's funny i had a different promo but i was inspired by your toast and i'm gonna promote grace and frankie it's so good fiance and i have been watching it and (laughs) I was thinking about it because they literally, the episode we watched just last night was an episode because like, spoiler alert, uh, they eventually come out with like a line of vibrators for older women because they're like older women masturbate. But like, you know, we need something that's comfortable for us to grip because a lot of us have osteoporosis. Oh, I didn't understand that. Or whatever. Or like, you know, arthritis. arthritis, That's what I'm thinking of. Yeah. And they're like, so like, we need something that's like, easier for us to grip and like that works better for us and like and they were just had this episode where like there was this marketing person who like 
was like, yeah, we're going to do all these ads for you. And they made them like 20, 30 years younger. And they were like, that's not what we look like. We made this for women who look and feel like us. Right. And then I was just thinking about how powerful I, it's funny because Jane Fonda is in it and you mentioned her <laughs> and she's with your story uh-huh. and nine to five, which I watched last week. But <laughs> I just love that this whole show is like a celebration of like older women's being mm. <laughs> in general. Cause we like to forget about them yeah. and their sexuality. Yeah. So Grace and Frankie, if you haven't watched it, it's a fucking great show. Perfect. Perfect. <laughs> I love that. It's like our show that we watch if like we've been doing like we watch it on Thursday nights specifically mm-hmm. because I'm usually getting home a little bit later. So right. we can't watch The Outsiders because it's an hour long show. Right. Too late. <laughs> Too late for that. Um, but before we do our little send offs, I do want to wish uh, my aunt needs a get well. She, I texted her this week. I sent her a card. And I was all Shit, yours her. is better. Aunt Needs. <laughs> Whose was better? Whose was better? Vota. Vote on it. Um, <laughs> you can send us a text. I will say, <laughs> I bought this card and it was so cute on the front. And then I didn't realize until I opened it up at home. It was like, on the front, it said, get well soon. And on the inside, it said, miss your smiling face. And I was like, I mean, I do, but that's very intense for a card. <laughs> Yeah, and it was also like right in the middle where I wanted to write my message. Like I wanted it to be <laughs> blank inside. I do miss your smiling Could face. You, can you white? Needs. Can you white out the inside? I love your smiling face, but I miss needs. your toast ability, yeah. Annie. You're so we good at toast. You're doing better, um, and we love you. And we just wanted to give you a shout out on the podcast because she's our only family member that listens. Yeah, our only and blood. She's a- Wait, our only blood family. She like member. hikes in the Swiss Alps, and she's so fucking cool. Yeah. And yeah, so get better soon. We love you. Um, and follow us everywhere. <laughs> if you everywhere. haven't already, everywhere and anywhere. Um, we're in so many places. You can find us all the social media, mm-hmm. all of the uh, places. But where we really want you to most find us is number one on Apple Podcasts. Leave us a rate and review. Yeah. And number two, join us on Patreon if you want even more of this. And <laughs> if you um, are like a new listener and you want our oldest, oldest episodes, then our website is herstoryontherocks.com. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. if you're going on a plane or something, you can download them. There's a download button included Perfect. on every episode. Yes. So yeah. just in case you want to binge on your next flight to Tokyo. There's um, enough hours of us. Yes, there are plenty. <laughs> if that's what you want to do with yourself. Uh, and finally, we want you to never forget that well-behaved women have a full button jar. Oh, yes, they do. And they rarely make history. Goodbye. to her story on the rocks we are independently produced by 1986 entertainment and proudly recorded in baltimore maryland if there's a woman in history you would like us to cover you can email us at herstoryontherocks at gmail.com you can also message us on twitter or instagram we post all of our cocktail recipes on tuesdays so that you can go get all the supplies you need and drink along with us see you next week bye